Hello. Meet Mike Phillips. Oh, the biggest risk is the constant dumbing down of the American people. He loves animals. He's a little bit more skeptical about humans. And believe it or not, he's actually rather optimistic. I, I wish I could say otherwise, but I believe it to be true. We are fast becoming a country of ecological illiterates. And if you one day catch yourself at a dinner party where Mr. Phillips is also a guest and the subject of ecology comes up, he may just be the most literate person in the room. From 1986 to 1994, he was the Red Wolf Recovery Program Coordinator. From 94 to 97, Mike was also project leader for Yellowstone's Gray Wolf Restoration. We began reintroducing Red Wolves into the Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge in northeastern North Carolina in 1987. That stood as the first effort in the history of mankind to restore a carnivore species that had been declared extinct in the wild. He left the National Park Service in 1997 to help establish and serve as executive director for the Turner Endangered Species Fund and also an advisor for the Turner Biodiversity Division. Yeah, that, Ted Turner. Uh, since then, since inception, uh, they have collectively stood as the most significant private effort in the world to redress the extinction crisis. Mike also serves on the science advisory team to the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. And as if that all weren't enough... He's also a Democratic state senator from Montana. By choice, I also serve in elected office, as I mentioned, and will sit as a state senator to the end of 2020. The thumbnail of that, I have been involved in wolf recovery for holy mackerel. Uh, it's going on almost 40 years now. There's a lot of things I know nothing about. I know a little bit about wolf recovery and restoration, and am honored to have done my small part to make the programs um, across the country uh, successful, with a couple of exceptions. Success hasn't defined the work everywhere, but I'm also a believer you can almost always learn more from your failures than you can your, your successes. And if something doesn't kill you, it's probably good for you. To be sure, he's being modest. Mike's interest in wolves was first peaked in 1978 as an undergrad at the University of Illinois. He began working with them just two years later. Now, in the nearly four decades since that time has passed, Mike has likely become one of North America's foremost experts on the reintroduction of many animals, but in particular, that of wolves. Basically, when Mike talks about wolves, you listen. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock. I'm also host and producer of the Majority Villain podcast. And today is part two of a presentation on protecting wolves and their legacy in the Rocky Mountain National Park. If you haven't already listened to part one, I definitely recommend you check it out. And you can find it on the website's blog at wildlensinc.org, entitled The Fortunate Few. It's also available on the podcast app you're already using. Here's a snippet of part one when I talked to Colorado's Wolf Sanctuary, Michelle Prue, Director of Animal Care and Education, as she discusses their rescue mission of wolves and wolf dogs. 
So the ones you're seeing in this enclosure here, the one who's sitting down looking at us, this is Loki. He was rescued from a breeder up in Alaska who was running kind of a, a roadside zoo breeding operation. And uh, he basically spent his entire life until he was rescued on an eight-foot chain uh, being on display to tourists coming through. And if you liked what you saw, if it was during breeding season, you could pay to bring a puppy home from Alaska as a souvenir. The one who's over there, uh, Mark in her territory, she's the one thrashing. Her name is Zoe. She is actually from Illinois. Uh, she was being kept as a fur farm where they would uh, pelt the fur for coats or boots or whatever happened. And that fur farm got shut down. The gentleman was primarily raising foxes, but uh, also had 15 wolves. And she's one of the wolves that he had at the fur farm. Are you coming down? Hi, Loki. Hi, Zoe. The Turner Endangered Species Fund and Turner Biodiversity Division have, as Mike mentioned earlier, been the most significant private effort to address the extinction crisis. Obviously, somebody doesn't do that kind of incredibly intensive work unless they're highly motivated. This is what motivates Mike. The fund and the divisions have, from day one, worked on imperiled plants, birds, fishes, mammals, amphibians, reptiles, uh, one invertebrate. And, and, and they all are fascinating to me. I am fascinated by the issue of rareness, especially when the rareness is uncalled for. I'm fascinated by efforts to make something that is uncommon common when the latter is what should, what should define the species. We, we have put upon, I believe, humanity, me, you, everybody else, we have too, too much put upon Mother Earth, in many cases, the pressure we have put on her is needless pressure. We, we don't have to be so unwilling to accommodate wild and self-willed nature. And I'm honored to say that I've had the good fortune to work to push back on that lack of accommodation by advancing a host of imperiled species restoration projects, including those that involve gray wolves in western Colorado. On the surface of it? It's hard to see what all the debate really is about. Are wolves really that dangerous to humans? Do they pose a significant risk to farmers and ranchers? Depredation or domestic livestock that's lost to wild predators is certainly an emotional and economic factor to be considered. In fact, it seems the debate is never ending. Opponents argue reintroducing that top predator is a bad idea. Jeff Todd, live in Adams County. Jeff, the state also looked into that possibility recently. Jim, it was just about two years ago when the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission decided it did not want to endorse a plan to reintroduce wolves. But activists kept their head down and kept holding meetings at the grassroots level to try and change public opinion. But some people still feel like this is a very dangerous proposition. In eating elk, which is their primary prey, wolves make ecosystems healthier. Delia Malone has been working for years to get Colorado to change and reintroduce wolves. Wolves are important moderators. She says following the model used in Yellowstone National Park more than 20 years ago, we could see the same benefits in Colorado. But we have the same ecological processes that sculpted the landscape and sculpted the wildlife. Um, wolves were here in the thousands before they were rapidly extirpated. Hunters killed off the wolves in Colorado in the 1940s. Steve Lohr says that has actually helped businesses here. 
If you're a wool grower and you're losing sheep, the obvious loss is there. If you're a cattleman, the obvious loss is there. If there are no more hunting opportunities, there's a huge loss there. Lohr says other states like Idaho and Oregon have dealt with wolf problems and doesn't want to see the same here. Certainly wolves aren't the answer to controlling either an overpopulated herd. Wolves are not going to decimate elk. They're actually going to improve the population and to bring that understanding that livestock can live in coexistence with wolves. There's an activist group called the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. They're going to continue holding meetings around Colorado in the new year, but they need to get two big groups on their side. That's the CPW Commission and also the state legislature. Oh, because of the power of of stories that advance a myth. Uh, the, 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 the mythical wolf, the, the wolf that many people think exists, people that oppose wolf recovery, uh, they, they have a, a, an impression of the wolf that is just a myth. Unfortunately, the myth is as strong as it is wrong. But it's because of that very powerful myth, almost certainly born of European descent. Ah, oh, gee whiz, people just can't find it in themselves. Many people just can't find it in themselves to accommodate the gray wolf, even though the data are so clear that the real wolf, the real wolf is, is relatively easy to live with. The real wolf represents no threat to human safety, not a threat that's notable in any way. The real wolf does not represent a threat to the livestock industry. It's true that wolves can depredate on livestock and create problems for individual ranchers. But the cases of depredations are so few and far between that they have no bearing on the industry itself. And the problems that wolves can create for individual ranchers are relatively easy to resolve. And we have a a basket of options available to us to prevent problems from arising in the first place. And finally, gray wolves don't represent a threat to the big game recreational hunting industry. Uh, certainly they can contribute to the population dynamics of a prey population like elk, but there is a host of factors that affect the success rate of recreational hunters. And gray wolves are just one of many. Moreover, it is fair to point out that most hunters pursue elk for purely recreational reasons. They're not subsistence hunters. They're not going to go home hungry if they fail to put an elk or a deer in the cooler. And it's also fair to point out the elk or deer that are being hunted by these recreational hunters uh, represent a public resource, a resource that is is of import to, to all of us that belong to the collective that is the citizenry of any one particular state. And many members of that citizenry would say, oh, gee whiz, Greg, you know, there is no more noble fate for an elk than to end up in the belly of a wolf. So wolf recovery has struggled because of the mythical wolf, but it is, as I said, unfortunately, as strong a myth as it is wrong. And we can speak about specifics as to why it's wrong, but it is true. The things I just said, wolves are not a threat to human safety. They're not a threat to the livestock industry. They're not a threat to the big game recreational killing industry. 
but folks just can't get past the myth. And you know, Greg, what is so ironic about that? Yet the first animal domesticated was a gray wolf. And for thousands and thousands of years, the dog, the dog now, the dog, would have been a wolf that had been socialized and was comfortable uh, in and around people, and people were comfortable in and around it. It was a, probably a very rich relationship that provided benefits for both. And you know how we hold our dogs in such high regard, and yet many people struggle to honor the origins of that dog. Mike is a witty, observational man. He's quick to see the irony in a situation or ideology. We, we don't know that, that, that nutrient cycle and energy flows. Uh, we don't know that about 90% of the energy that moves through a trophic system, through the food chain, if you will, is, is lost to the next level just because it's needed to maintain life at its current level. We, we, don't, we don't appreciate uh, the ecology of the landscapes that define our country or the landscapes that define the world. We are ecological illiterates. We think milk comes from a grocery store. Our, our illiteracy uh, prompts us to underestimate the cost of meat, for example. And I don't mean the cost of a T-bone steak at the store. I mean the ecological cost of a diet that has a heavy reliance on meat. Meat is a very expensive in an ecological context, meat is a very expensive food item. That's why always around the world, as long as multicellular life has occupied this place we call home, four, five, six hundred million years, it's always been the case that, that the carnivores are relatively uncommon because of the ecological costs of a diet with a heavy reliance on meat. We don't know those things. And yet they're, they're basic ecological observations. The biggest challenge we face going forward in readjusting our relationship with Mother Earth is we are ignorant of her ways. I think Mike's education and experience make him prone to frustration. Frustration at basic science illiteracy or apathetic and unplugged, unbothered natures. Frustration at people watching as a species disappears in front of our very eyes forever. And just when you think Mike is going to turn to this cynical, awful, negative perspective, he turns into a poet and reminds you that every good thing is worth the struggle. If you give them half a chance, they'll take full advantage of it. They just needed a chance to find their way in the wild again. And when we created that chance by by letting animals go. And fundamentally, I concluded, at least with, with wolves, this is not the case for other imperial species I've worked with. If you can just get people to uh, set aside their sometimes hatred, sometimes fear, but general opposition, the, the wolf can, can really do, do pretty well. There's a chorus we sing here in this place, Colorado. It rings from the maroon bells to mile high. From the great sand dunes to the highest town in America. 
birthplace of rodeo and the cheeseburger, where snowmelt flows into every glass. We hear it floating on the breeze above red rocks or drifting way out into the backcountry where the wild things roam. And the air hums with life. It's our anthem to freedom. But listen carefully. One voice has gone missing. A note that rang through our mountains for eons has disappeared. Help us return this voice to Colorado. Restoration efforts to bring back the Mexican wolf, the red wolf, and gray wolf have all had their unique challenges and strategies. For example, while gray wolves brought in from Canada did quite well on their very own, red wolves needed much more captive breeding and concerted efforts to succeed. In maintaining and improving environmental quality, clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty. When Richard Nixon signed the Endangered Species Act of 1973, it didn't seem that anybody would have really anticipated the issue of genetic diversity loss. These red wolves that Mike Phillips and his team tried to relocate and reintroduce often would end up interbreeding with coyotes, pointing on that issue of genetic diversity, something that was never clearly defined under the Endangered Species Act, making the issue much more complicated. The debate stands that hybridization would not explicitly protect these species from external threats. Early on, you are, you're, you're positioned to intensively manage individual wolves to promote survival, to promote reproductive activity, promote puppies being born on the ground. Those puppies grow up and they give birth to puppies, and pretty soon the thing takes off. And it, it, it takes on a life of its own. In the northern Rocky Mountains, because the landscapes of central Idaho and the Yellowstone and, and Yellowstone National Park and the Great Yellowstone Ecosystem. Those two projects were being run concurrently. Animals were translocated from Canada to the Yellowstone to Yellowstone National Park. Animals were translocated to Central Idaho and, and, and released slightly different techniques, but the basic aim was exactly the same. Use release translocated wolves from Canada to establish viable populations in Central Idaho and the Great Yellowstone Ecosystem that would contribute to the recovery of the gray wolf in the northern Rocky Mountains. Uh, the, the habitat was so good that really very few management actions were needed to promote survival of the released wolves so that they gave birth to puppies, that gave birth to puppies, that gave birth to puppies. Now, so the intense management that defined the Red Wolf program to promote establishment of a population, the intense management that has defined the Mexican Wolf program to establish a, uh, the basics of a population, those intensive management schemes that really weren't needed in the northern Rocky Mountains. And you can only conclude, Greg, is the habitats here in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, were better than uh, the habitats of the southeastern United States for the red wolf and better than the habitats for the Mexican wolf in the southwestern part of the United States. The, the other big difference between 
the three programs, Red Wolves in the Southeast, Gray Wolves in the Northern Rocky Mountains, Mexican Wolves in the border country of the U.S.-Mexico. The Red Wolf program and the Mexican Wolf program uh, had to release animals that had been born and raised in captivity to jumpstart the population. There were no wild Red Wolves to work with. There were no wild Mexican Wolves to work with. Both of those recovery programs were defined by captive breeding efforts that created a big enough source population so you took animals from captivity and let them go. And admittedly, some captive-born and captive-reared wolves, whether it's a Mexican wolf or red wolf, can be a bit naive. In contrast, using wild stock from Canada, holy mackerel, Greg, they hit the ground in Idaho, they hit the ground in Yellowstone National Park running, and knew exactly what to do. And, and, uh, and so that, that sped up considerably the uh, period of time to establish a population in those two areas compared to Mexican wolves and red wolves, and working with wild stock, increased the odds that there really weren't a lot of management actions in the northern Rocky Mountains needed for promoting survival. But, but all of the projects are fundamentally same song, second verse. But, but more importantly, I suppose, given that all of this work is justified against the Federal Endangered Species Act, it, it, it is the overarching rationale for all of this work so to, uh, to, uh, to understand the, the, the nature of the work that is to be accomplished, it requires that you understand the Endangered Species Act. To properly understand the ESA requires that you understand congressional intent. You can read the law, and it, it's pretty clear, but you can, you can gain some additional insight by trying to understand congressional intent. And, and, and as a lawmaker, I can tell you, Greg, intent matters when... when when the executive aims to implement a law, when the executive branch aims to implement a law that the legislative branch has passed, when the judicial branch of government aims to interpret a law that the legislative branch has passed, both the executive and the, and the judicial branches are compelled to assess intent. What was Congress's intent? What was the legislative intent? When you look at the, the, uh, the reports from the United States House of Representatives when the 1973 Endangered Species Act was being debated on the chamber floor, you look at those records, they would, they would clearly be relevant to the question, what was Congress's intent with the, 73 endangered, the 1973 Endangered Species Act? And right out of the gate, Greg, uh, during the, the debate on the House floor, the representatives said, uh, the Endangered Species Act aims to preserve genetic diversity. And, and we, want it, we, want it, we want to maintain, we want to preserve the, diverse, the genetic diversity of nature, the genetic diversity of these imperiled species covered by the Endangered Species Act once it's passed. We want to do that. We want to do that because we never know, we never know when that genetic diversity might serve humankind. Now, now admittedly, that's a very anthropocentric view. It was a very anthropocentric rationale. But it, it is nonetheless still the intent. Congress's intent with the ESA was to, was to uh, conserve genetic diversity. So what happens when red wolves are still uh, uncommon, when there's 50 red wolves on the ground or 75 red wolves on the ground or 100 red wolves on the ground, small numbers, and, and, and they're, they occupy the same landscape that coyotes do? Hybridization becomes an issue. 
Now, that's not the case for the gray wolf. For whatever reason, the gray wolf does not have this same predilection. There are cases where gray wolves have hybridized with coyotes. That is true. But they're very, very uncommon events. Uh, not so with the red wolf. And so there's more to the red wolf story than I went into. But nonetheless, your original question was, what did I learn? What was the one overarching conclusion that I reached from the early years? Which That was my time with the red wolf program. And that conclusion was that restoration is an alternative to extinction. A, uh, in my mind, a beautiful, uh, uh, almost uh, 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 an alternative that we're, we're morally compelled to pursue. And that restoration, restoration can also mean, or can specifically mean, the interbreeding of similar yet different species. No, no, no. No, I'm, I haven't decided what I personally think about red wolves and coyotes coming together. Okay. I, as a state lawmaker, I... I appreciate the importance of laws. I appreciate the importance of a common sense interpretation of of a law like the Endangered Species Act. As a citizen of the United States, I recognize the importance of abiding by laws. And right now, the ESA does not do a good job with uh, the question, what do you do? What kind of federal protections, if any, uh, confer to a red wolf coyote puppy? Uh, it complicates now, things. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I'll say this. But right now, uh, and it's a longer story than we probably have time tonight, but we still do not know empirically if the red wolf, as represented by a viable population of, say, 250 animals, or maybe even 200, could it maintain its genetic integrity? Could could 200-plus red wolves uh, choose to breed almost exclusively with one another. Maybe this predilection to hybridize with coyotes is a function of the inability to find mates of your own kind. And if, if you're a large mammal uh, and, and you get a chance to breed once a year, and that is the case for red wolves, females are monestrous. They only cycle once a year. Males and females uh, breed once a year, produce ideally one litter of puppies a year. If that's your reproductive strategy and and if darwinian fitness means anything and we know that it means a lot your one time to breed every year comes around and you can't find one of your own kind but you can find a female very similar well who wasn't it stephen stills who wrote if you can't be with the one you love love the one you're with (laughs) i'm sure that was the sentiment going through the wolf's mind you know, I, I suspect it's something very similar. They're driven by these very important impulses that on a reproductive or in a reproductive context, context, it's an impulse that services once a year. So in some respects, it makes perfect sense that if you can't find a female red wolf and you're a young male red wolf and you're reproductively active and you can find a reproductively active unmated coyote, why not? So it may be, it may be that this predilection to accept uh, a coyote as a mate is a function of the numbers of your own kind. So we started out in the mid-80s with a a very simple simple hypothesis. We hypothesized that a core population of red wolves, 200, 250 strong, would maintain itself, would maintain its genetic integrity by breeding by red wolves breeding with red wolves. 
and that hybridization wouldn't occur at a level that was significant. Here, 32 years later, we began the work in earnest in 1986. Here, 32 years later, we still don't have an answer to that question. It's a difficult question to answer, but I, I think it's a question that the Endangered Species Act would uh, would uh, would welcome an answer, and I personally think that the species deserves an answer too. But that that's kind of where we are with the red wolf. It's a very very different situation than for the gray wolf in the Rocky Mountain West. It must be mind-boggling to work on these issues full-time just to see people all around you being completely apathetic to the work that you're doing, completely illiterate, as Mike says. It's also quite clear that Mike maintains an incredible level of optimism and hope about the future. I asked Mike if he would share a memory with me, thinking that it would probably be one from early on in his career, talking about a difficult relocation or a particular wolf that gave him a hard time. I thought certainly the story would be 20, 30 years old. He talks about what it took to start the foundation with Ted Turner and all the obstacles and hoops and political games that he must have gone through in the last 20 years. Instead, the thing that Mike went to immediately was a recent camping trip. Now that we've been talking about this for a little bit and you've kind of been, you know, reflecting on some of these things, uh, do you have a personal memory over this work that you would like to share with us or you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Just some short anecdote. Huh. 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 Yeah, you know what? I've had the good fortune to, to do... I've had the good fortune to be involved in wonderful projects for many, many years. I've been blessed to have great teammates. It's been a high honor for me to be a banana in an important bunch. But just this past weekend, just this past weekend... It was uh, my treat and my family's treat to canoe on Yellowstone Lake in Yellowstone National Park with Doug Smith, a dear friend of mine and an outstanding biologist who has done just a masterful job leading the Wolf Research Program in Yellowstone National Park for over 20 years now. Uh, it was It was my family's great privilege to spend this past uh, Labor Day holiday weekend with Doug and his family paddling canoes on Yellowstone Lake in the park. And on the second night out, the second night out, I was awoken from my tent by a lone wolf howling. And it was a sort of plaintive howl, and it was just one animal, and it was just one howling bout. The wolf offered a flat howl, and then the wolf offered a breaking howl, and, and then the wolf went silent. And the next morning I woke up, I said, geez, you guys heard a wolf last night. And I, I was the only one that had woken up to it and, and says, oh, gee, was, you know, heard this wolf last night. On night three, the very next night, the same wolf did the same thing for hours. About every 45 minutes, this wolf, I don't know if it was a male or female, uh, I would just say she, she howled and, and uh, flat howled and a breaking howl, and then maybe sometimes a flat howl. And then she'd go silent for 
45 minutes or an hour. She'd do it again, she did it again, and she did it again, she did it again. Holy Mackerel, it was four or five hours of this howling. And I listened to it all. I could lay in my tent and hear it all, and everyone else in tent, everyone heard it all night long. And I laid down, I thought, this is, this is a member of one of the most social mammals in the world. Gray wolves are keenly social. Their great strength is their sociality. And here's this lone wolf, and she was howling and howling and howling, looking for a member of her own kind. And there was never a response. And I laid down, I thought, holy mackerel, and I'm like, you should get up, you should get up, you should get up, and she'd howl back. To at least affirm for her that there's someone out there listening. I didn't, I didn't, because the Park Service has a policy, which I support, that prohibits calling wildlife and howling at a gray wolf would constitute calling wildlife. And I support the policy. I don't want people squeaking in coyotes or bugling elk or hooting at howls. And, and it's a policy that Doug Smith very much supports. And Doug was our host, and I, I didn't want to violate my host sensibilities. So I did not get out of my tent. But I laid there yearning to help back. So to, to simply affirm for her that there was somebody listening and I think nature is howling at us all the time to listen. And I hope someday we find it in ourselves to howl back. That was beautifully somber. Uh, that is that is perfect. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, well, the, wolf, the credit goes to the wolf, not me. I was just, <laughs> just laying in my sleeping bag, dude. <laughs> Well, somebody's got to be there to hear it. I suppose it's like if a tree falls in the woods. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, at some point, we got to respond. What's the best place for people to reach you out, Mike? Oh, gee whiz. Uh, if you want them to reach you. Yeah, no. if, if you're calling out there and you want somebody to call be back. Careful. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Uh, I'm pretty good with emails. I'm much better with emails than my phone. My email address, Greg, is simply Mike.Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Mike.Phillips at, at TedTurner.com. That'll work. That'll work. Uh, Montana State Senator and Environmental Superstar, Mike Phillips, thank you so much for being on the Eyes on Conservation podcast. Greg, it, it certainly was my pleasure. Thank you for the chance to offer a few thoughts. Hey, the pleasure was all mine, believe me. Contact with Doug. He sent it to him, too, man. Okay. Uh, he was through all the credit and that howling wolf. Shit, if it wasn't for Doug, I wouldn't have been on the lake. If it wasn't for the wolf, I would have fallen asleep. That's perfect. That's just beautiful. So um, I will do just that. Thank you so much for visiting with me. Please keep in touch. Yeah, thank you, Greg. You bet. Take care, Mike. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock. I'm also host and producer of the Majority Villain podcast. For more information about Mike Phillips and the work that he's doing, or to hear first part of this two-part series, go to wildlensinc.org and listen not only to part one of this two-part series with Michelle Prue and Mike Phillips, but also to check out all the amazing material that's on there, blog posts and podcasts from other incredibly intelligent and talented producers and uh, environmentalists and conservationists. And if you liked the show today, tell a friend about it. Subscribe to the podcast already on your app or on Apple Podcasts and get involved. Signing out. 
I'm Gregory Haddock, wishing you all the best.